This cheese has been open for months. Are you trying to poison me? It might be a little more chewy. Chewy? It's complete rubber. Wine. Must I perish of thirst? Where's the wine? There's a bottle we opened due to the last recording. That's all we've got. <laughs> Sour wine, rubbery cheese. Is this how we are served? Our downloads are low, Paul. It's some time since we went a recording. Now, meanwhile, our fellow podcasters feast their bellies full on fresh cheese and swill down flagons of fine wine. Urgh. All of time and space have a new series on the go. I hear their storehouses and cellars are well stocked. Ah, then perhaps we should relieve them of some of their abundance, eh, my friends? <laughs> <laughs> They're good neighbours. They'll not miss a little of their plenty. Look! Stars are falling! I see only one star. Uh, actually, strictly speaking, stars uh, don't fall? It has fallen outside the something who bunker! Tis an omen! An evil sign! It's an opportunity! We've only got 4.6 stars on Apple Podcasts. Hurry! Let's get moving! Hurry? Hurry where? To find the star before some other podcaster robs us of it! It landed close by! But outside the bunker is still in darkness. Who knows what demons may set upon us? Why, you chicken-hearted knaves, both of you! It is but an hour till dawn. We'll follow you then, Paul. Oh, very well. And to relieve the boredom, let's record a podcast. We're with you, Paul. Where's that wine? It might have been almost drinkable after all. liked about the original scene is that he, having spat out the wine and thrown half of it over the extras he then <laughs> proceeds to drink it quite happily at the end of the scene uh, when he's <laughs> toasting to the star so oh, got you yes our, our scene i think had more consistency than the original <laughs> welcome to the podcast where we take something old a doctor who story from the original series compare it with something new one from the new series and add something borrowed that sketch to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 81. And this time we're looking at how journalist and companion Sarah Jane Smith was introduced in both the original and new series. So first we'll look at Third Doctor Story, The Time Warrior, from season 11. Then after that we'll examine Tenth Doctor Outing School Reunion from series 2. And with me to decide whether these stories are front page news or half a column somewhere deep inside, are two Something Who regulars, our favourite storyteller, Paul. <laughs> good, good evening. Hello. And science and astronomy writer, Giles. Evening. I mean, I said last time that we met, it had been a wee while since we recorded, but it, it certainly has been uh, a few weeks <laughs> uh, on this occasion, mainly down to the fact it took me forever to edit. Anyway, exciting news, chaps. We have a new review on Apple Podcasts. Oh. That doesn't refer to our accents in any way. Ah, uh, and it, well, it's the ones right. we just used, or yeah, our, no, no, or no, no, our, our regular ones. Yeah. Does it refer uh, to our our newspapers of choice? No, no, none of that. It doesn't suggest that we are in any way posh. No, it simply says, and rather charmingly, 
funny and insightful takes on stories I thought there was nothing funny or insightful left to say. About? Yeah. So, oh. um... <laughs> So thank Sorry, you, didn't mean thank, to. <laughs> thank you for that. Just, for that, just uh, script editing uh, re- your re- review there. Review, <laughs> Craig. Will thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, nine out of ten for grammar, according to Paul, but 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 very very much <laughs> uh, appreciated nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, it was, it was delightful. Thank you very much, mystery reviewer. Yeah. Very nice indeed. So I, I mean. People always say that they hate those podcasts where they go uh, rambling on for hours without actually talking about the subject. So perhaps oh, right, yeah. we should we should dive in and start talking about The Time Warrior by Robert Holmes, uh, as directed by Alan Bromley. Alan Bromley. Yeah. There's a name to conjure with. Well, indeed. I find his visual style and pace almost as appealing as the northwest Kentish town of the same name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I did notice that the guy who was Sir Edward in this, Alan Rowe, was also in. Oh no, he wasn't. No, I'm, I'm telling you. You can say horror fan rock. Yes, but that that didn't have anything to do with Alan Bromley. That was um, what's no. the face. Uh, and he was in the Moon Base too. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll maybe come back to that because I... that was that, that was an absolute non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sort of sequitur between this and horror fang rock but maybe we'll come back to it no tell you what why don't i just say it now yes i mean famously this was terence dick's script editing commissioning robert holmes to write a historical yeah and holmes grumpy said oh i don't like historicals it means i've got to go and get some books at the library you you mm. bastard dicks <laughs> and then he returned the favor by um by making dicks write a historical and dicks went to the library and got out the big boys book of uh was it? no sorry the ladybird book of lighthouse <laughs> so they, they both had a similar they both pretended to um, have a similar attitude towards historical research, but I think Dix probably enjoyed it quite a lot. Yeah. Mm. But um, based on this evidence, I don't, I don't think Holmes was lying when he said that he didn't enjoy <laughs> researching. But um, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's it's a very non-specific period of history, isn't it? I mean, they they, they don't they, they mentioned the king and they mentioned France, but it, it it's um, <laughs> it's very it's very light on actual detail. Yeah, can we can we narrow it down any more? It's it's set in England. Do they specify that? Yes, right. There is, and there, there's a king. So yes. what, what what can we narrow it down to? Well, yeah, and and he's he's Sir Edward of Wessex. Yeah, it is. It's suggested somewhere, perhaps in the novelisation, that it's during the reign of King John, but mm. there's absolutely nothing to to suggest that in the uh, um, the script itself. So. Who knows? I mean, I think it could be as late as um, it's probably probably a Plantagenet king, I'd have thought. But beyond that, I think it's very difficult to tell. Yes, I don't insist upon acres of historical research on screen, or indeed accuracy, particularly for me to enjoy a, a story set in our glorious past. Mm. But something about this story is always <laughs> always not set right with me. Even from when I first watched it, when I knew very little real history, I always thought there was something a bit odd about it. And watching it again today, I realised it's because Angron and Bloodaxe, the main characters, are Anglo-Saxons, yeah. right? They're, I mean, they're, that's what they would have to be if they were real. Yes. But we appear to be set in the post-Norman era because there are references to Normans. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, I'm not an expert, but is it... Big Baphomentic castles, hmm. post post-Norman. Yeah, but I mean, my very superficial knowledge of the Norman conquest is that they replaced all of the Anglo-Saxon nobility 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it might only have been one two percent of the population, or, or most, but um, and brought in their own mates, built new castles, and had the the entire land under subjugation within a you know ten twenty years. But the way they did that was to get rid of was to be ruthless with the top level of society, which meant that the Normans ended up within a couple within a generation ruling, and you know a primarily ninety nine percent Anglo Saxon. Populous. So, I could be wrong about this, but it feels like historical to have these characters, Arngron and Bloodaxe and, and their mates, larging it up in their own castle in any era in the, after 1066, but this appears to be somewhere in the 1100s, right? So what, what do you think? Have I missed something? What, is this plausible? Well, there is a line in the plot that says that they have taken ah, it. They've, they've right. sort of forcibly grabbed it from someone or other. Damn it. You mm. see, I was wondering yeah. if... I told, so you, I, I told you I kept drifting off and missing bits. And I did wonder if there'd possibly been just a one-liner, which, and it would have to, and I thought it would have to be something along those lines. And I missed it. Do you think Dix put that in <laughs> to, to get <laughs> his mate out of a hole? Possibly. Because why else, why would you write it that way? Is it important? Does it not work if these are, I mean, you've got your posh, you've got, you've, there's a contrast here. Yeah. There's your your posher feet aristocrat and your yes. your rough and ready warlike thick. They're not nobilities. I still have no idea. They're sort of you know rebellious something or others, aren't they? They're, warlord, they're, yes. warlord, really. I guess. I'm just wondering why Holmes Wright wrote it this way. Yeah, I mean it, they wouldn't be tolerated for long, would they? I mean the the, the whole point, no. as you say, about the, the Normans is they would be pretty ruthless in. You know, driving these people out, but I suppose that the, the, the theory seems to be the king's busy fighting his war in France. Yeah. Sir Edward, who who would be his agent for getting rid of Iron Gron, is a bit kind of depleted, so mm. they they're just having to rub along for a wee while. There are, yeah. Well, apparently, this is the benefits of doing live research because I wasn't expecting to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> there was some, although there was continued resistance from some of the English nobility. After the Norman conquest, uh, William had to keep fighting. Apparently, there was a battle in Southwark, but then he confirmed the um, Earl of Northumbria and various others with their existing lands under him, and they they submitted to him. But then, obviously, further rebellions went on after that. Mm. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that that's the historical truth. But for my money. This just doesn't feel real. Maybe that's what he had in mind. He's tried to map this setup onto the historical truth, but it just doesn't mm. feel real to me. And I, I don't know why it is that this one story, which there must be far historical who stories with take far greater liberties with mm. with the facts than this, but something about the the atmosphere, the feel of this, the basic premise, just doesn't sit right with me and spoils the whole thing. But uh, I, perhaps that's just me. There's not a lot of actual gore in it, is there? Which I guess would be a bit more, you know. I mean, but there's, there's a lot of they're about to, to sort of kill somebody, but they never actually seem to to go ahead with it. So maybe that's one of the things. Hmm. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to think whether there's anything to be said about bows and things like that. Because don't the um, Iron Grunt's men have crossbows? Yes. And then and then Hal is a Hal is an archer. But I, I don't know. And you, we need to get your pal Robert Hardy involved in this, Richard. 
to uh, find out. <laughs> to find out all about them. Yeah, One of us should have read about, about that, time, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah, somebody's yeah. done the research for us in terms of where the placement of military hardware would, would put this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I can't say it... I wouldn't say it spoils the whole... <laughs> I, w- I, w- I wouldn't say it really spoils my enjoyment of it, because I think my enjoyment comes from other places, but it is fairly fairly unique, I think, in... You know, I can't really think of another Doctor Who that, that is quite so vague about where or where it says. It's just like, here's a 500-year period of mm. an old um, Doc Cotton... And Sarah Jane in episode four are swanning around like they're in sort of high middle ages kind mm. of stuff with, with wimples, yeah, and so on, aren't they? But mm. yes, it's 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 an odd omission that they didn't try and. But I suppose yeah, yeah. I'd, it's, I, I'd have uh, assumed around the time of King John and all these re- all these rebellions and I'm things not, like I'm that. I'm not going to go on about it, but maybe you know, it's, it's just a chancer who's. Or am I going to go on about it? But I mean, it's just. <laughs> The look doesn't help, as you say. The, the visually, the, cost, the designers don't appear uh, must have been equally clueless, and they just picked things from all over the place. Because, yeah. as well as the way they're characterised in the script, Angron and his team addressed. Ah, I just thought of a thing that I read in the that I brief, briefly skipped past me in the production notes, right? Which is a mention that that Holmes got the name Angron from Denmark. And what it, blood, blood axe as well, which is well, quite. quite. They're more. They're actually more Vikings. For me, going on yeah, so I, w- I wonder whether they're meant to be another. In Doctor f- Who terms, they look more like the invading Vikings from mm. the time, time meddler. Yes. Well, and there would have been Vikings. You know, it, it, I mean, the last Viking invasion was what 1066, just before the Normans. Hmm. But I don't, and, and there would have been. Danes, I suppose, still living in the, in the north of England, but pretty hmm. pretty few and far between in the south, I'd have thought. Hmm. Hmm. So, what was Holmes getting at here? Because um, Iron is written. So, if you peel, if you look read between the lines, it, or maybe you don't have to look that closely. Maybe it's pretty obvious. But his dialogue is very typical Holmesy Holmesian villain. Yeah. He's, and sometimes he, you know, he's got this sort of Magnus overwritten Magnus Greel sort of flair with with invective. Labyrinth invective about him, hasn't he? Which doesn't qu- quite fit with his loutishness. And I wonder. Yeah. If he's... He did, he, I agree. With you. He, did, he does feel like he's. I mean, he's, he's perhaps not educated, but he does seem to have a grasp of the language, which is kind of a, a bit above and beyond someone who's just a, a complete ruffian. Hmm. All of the other people in his entourage are certainly painted as being. You know, somewhat lacking in in uh, conversation, but he seems to have a bit more um, <laughs> to say on most subjects. Yeah, I mean, mm. the, him and he and uh, was his mate called again? Bloodaxe. Bloodaxe. I guess they're supposed to be one of our those famous famous homes in double acts, but it it took me a while to notice that because it's not really it doesn't really come across very strongly. There's one scene in episode three where you think, oh, they're one of those, though, <laughs> but yeah. then then it just mm. then it drifts away again. The scene yeah. where um, Iron Grun suspects that Blood Axe is taking piss out of him. I think when this is evidence it. that, yeah, I think this is evidence that maybe the whole Holmes in Double Act thing, <laughs> further evidence that the whole Holmes in Double Act thing is a subsequent fan mapping of. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, if anything, you know, there were bits where I was thinking, hang on, Iron Grun and Lynx are actually doing, doing yes. that yeah. together. You know, they're sort of bouncing off each other. Well, well and, of course. Um, Have we discussed this? This precisely before, because even in 
Talons, where the most famous double act appears, Jaden Lightfoot, as as we know, they don't they don't actually get together till the last two episodes, and they're both mm. in other double acts earlier in the story. Yes. So it, yeah, even we even at Peak Holmes, the double act double act is a fluid thing. He yes. can pair yeah. any two characters together and get some business out of them, but then mm. as the story moves on, he can pair another two characters. Yeah. So, so it's doing him a disservice to suggest that he, like Eric Saywood, yeah. <laughs> have actual double acts yeah. when. So this story, what you can do. Hmm. this story forms a particular falls in a particular place in my um, fandom, which is it's the first s- uh, season I can remember watching uh, actually as ah. a whole as a whole no, as, as so. a young we didn't fan. Really go down this route, did we? Yeah, yeah. So so um, nineteen seventy very early seventy seventy three seventy four. I mean, I remember seeing an old Radio Times in the sort of you know mid to late 70s with you know the time warrior in it but it, 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 I, I i very much remember this series i mean i i, I have isolated memories of, of the green death and of planet of the daleks but in terms of this series of the doctor and sarah and so on yeah it's, it's much clearer i mean I, I couldn't say that that i can remember a lot about the time warrior from that period but certainly you know it's one that i remember having watched as it happened on the telly i I'm not quite elderly enough <laughs> to make that claim. I think I probably read the Target book first. Yeah. When did it come out on video? Oh, uh, early nineties. No, it was. Uh, 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 yeah, it would have know. been the book, right. and of course, famously, yeah. the, the, the prologue is written by Holmes, isn't it? Is that this one? Yes. And um, mm. I think one could tell, even as a child, that it was there's something odd about that prologue, <laughs> even though. He wasn't credited, and I didn't know for many years why it was that Terrence Dick suddenly developed a completely different style of writing and sense of humour mm. for the first half a dozen pages. Yeah. I do Giles. rather like that... Uh, sorry, well, well, we'll go to Giles in a second. I do rather like, I was going to say, the um, the title sequence, and, and you know we don't get very much of it before you know, Pertwee's gone and we, we've got a, a different version of it for Tom Baker, but it, there's mm. something about it that's, that's rather splendid. Yeah, Giles, do, how did do you, you come rem- across Do you it? remember um, being... Noticing the change of title sequence when uh, when you first saw it, then was it like me what, with season eighteen? Not really. I don't think I remember the the wibbly wobbly one from the previous few series of Pertwee. Um, so I think I, that was just the title sequence, as far as I remember it. Hmm. So yeah, how did you come uh, across it, Charles? I'm probably of a similar similar ilk to Paul. I do think I have. Very vague memories. I think I think one of my first Doctor Who memories might be Pertwee fighting the Sontaran. But so I always, yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure it is. Hmm. So I must have caught a glimpse, caught a wow. glimpse of it. Yeah, but I don't don't remember anything much more than that. And then it would have been reading the yeah reading the novelisation, which I think was seventy eight or seventy nine. Hmm. So that would have been yeah that cover. Was very, um, yes, it was. It was. It was quite distinctive. Wasn't very it? good. Very gripping. Oh, I'm going to have to Google this because I can't remember it. I don't think I had the original cover. Oh, okay. It's got the Sontar and spaceship it's, on it, hasn't it? Oh, what? Yeah, oh, that is the original. Very, okay, my mistake. Yes. I do remember it. Yeah, no, it's got it's got link, links coming, come out, coming out coming coming out the screen like one of the stereo MCs. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I always I was always. Slightly troubled by troubled by it because I was thinking, is it, is this a photo? Or is this, hmm. you know, because it struck me as being very photorealistic. Yeah. In a way that a lot of the other ones weren't. And for some reason, that that bugged me slightly. I thought, is it a model that they photographed? 
Yes, no, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the novel, and I'd have picked up on novelization, and I would have picked up on the DVD. Probably, I think I always thought it was probably quite a good one. Sorry, DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, I pro- probably watched it on VHS, courtesy of my pal Tim, who was able to source them from various various sources in the mid eighties, I think. Uh, and I think it would have been quite high up on my list of, well, I'd like to watch that one. I don't know how obscure we're allowed to be. I guess it depends how much time you need to fill. But I do remember seeing some ex- extensive clips of this on um, on TV in the early 80s, I remember now, because I used to always be on the lookout for if there was a segment about Doctor Who in a, in a magazine programme or something, right. and I'd get the video tape out and record it. Yeah. And, I re- and it was, I can't, was it? I can't remember where this was. Was it Blue Peter or was it the report of... Was it an anniversary? Was it around the mm. 20th anniversary or was it when Davison left? But there were clips of um, the Doctor and Sarah Jane meeting. Right. And a few other... So that that little bit of dialogue... I'm a journalist, Sarah Jane Smith. You realise this is a very dangerous place to be in, Miss Smith. Oh, yes. Well, I can't yeah. help that. I'm stuck here now. That yes. short bit is just absolutely burned into my synapses so I can't yeah that does sound familiar and a few other clips random clips in the story including the part three cliffhanger I think mm. is there so anyone can remember which BBC magazine program included that it was well it, it it wasn't it wasn't the did you see thing was it could be uh, could be that was that was oh, one that, that had a few but I'm not sure that it had necessarily had that one uh, it def- I think it definitely had the Link's taking his helmet off bit. Or <laughs> or what did it have the, the other one from um, uh, Sontaran Experiment? Anyway, I'm sure somebody will be able to tell us uh, that, that I'm r- ranting ridiculously. <laughs> uh, w- one thing that struck me about this story is that the structure is a little bit like, at the start, the visitation, because you've got the kind <laughs> of... You've got the star falling from the sky, you've got yeah. the kind of... The, the sort of initial, I don't know, four or five minutes of stuff that happens. And mm. then the action f- goes forward by several weeks because by the time you get back to, to Lynx, he's already kidnapped several scientists and he's got a whole operation going. Now, I'm mm. not saying that Eric Sayward saw the this story and, you know, thought about that, but it just feels like well, maybe it's maybe it's a device. It's got to be possible because that robot, the um, Lynx's android, is reminiscent in a, if you squint yeah. of the Teroleptal robot. Hmm. of that. Did we ever get to grips with whether or not Saywood actually remembered 70s Doctor Who and was pastiching it? Because uh, famously JNT said he didn't like the visitation because it reminded him of Talon's Wing Chiang. But that was JNT's opinion. I think it, sometimes people get confused, including myself, <laughs> and think that the implication was that Saywood remembered Talon's and was trying to pastiche it. He has some memory of what Doctor Who was like because he hadn't seen it for mm. half a decade. Anyway, we don't know. So that's mm. yeah. It's uh, mm. unlike the beginning of the visitation. It doesn't waste it, <laughs> a lot of money by casting yes. after an actress <laughs> that you then don't see again. And it's all, yeah. and it also moves much faster because though, as you say, it skips forward several weeks. It's so yeah. quick. We uh, within the first couple of scenes. Well, it's one scene, isn't it? Mm. One much more efficient scene. There's a lot. A lot of them. Um, does, does anyone actually story. die on screen? Uh, I was just thinking, does anyone actually die on screen? Because it seems there's a lot, there's a, there's lots of talk of death and whatever, <laughs> but it sort of feels like they never actually follow through with it. 
I mean, there are there, there's a suggestion. I mean, yes, Iron I suppose, gets zapped by Lynx right at the very end. Yeah, Lynx gets gets an arrow in the probit. Yes, thing. but I'm trying to think what what happens to the chap who looks a bit like a um, young Michael Palin who gets captured and and hypnotised in is it episode one or two? Hmm. Anyway, sorry, Paul, I I, I derailed you from a, a magnificent observation you're going to have just then. Did I had I not already made it? Was there more to come? How wonderful. <laughs> I wonder what I was going to say. Did I have that light in my eyes that I get? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's gone out now. <laughs> not even the embers remain. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's as bad as, as Pertwee's hairstyle at the start of this story. Uh, Shall what, I moan? What? Oh, what? Go on. No, no, no. What you wanted to do... No, have I was just a, going to say. Have you got a uh, bit about Pertwee's hairstyle that you want to get in? Not especially. I mean, it's just. I mean, it. It's got. It's got a lot of variations during the course of of the five years that he plays the, the Doctor. But this is the one story where it all seems to have gone horribly wrong, really. <laughs> and he, and he, even by episode two, it seems to have uh, be a little bit more Pertwee and a bit less, you know, Granny Perm. But but something somewhere has gone horribly wrong at the start of episode one. It's it's kind of difficult to to take your eyes away from it, really. It's very odd that whole scene, that whole setup, because the, the brigadier has apparently got the doctor there without telling him why. But yeah. he's convinced that it doesn't quite ring true that he's he's convinced the doctor to go and be squirrelled away in this house full of scientists or whatever. With that, and and by all accounts, hasn't actually said what it's all about. How how has his TARDIS got there? Has has, has it been Same way. sort of crated in, or has has it, has, it or has, 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 has he materialised it? I'm not quite. You're sure. more worried about how the, the the relatively portable TARDIS outer box can be moved from one part of England to another <laughs> than you are. Did, did you ever worry about how he got the console from between the laboratory and another through doors? <laughs> Doorway yeah. is a fraction of its size. Quite. Come on, priorities, man. <laughs> now unit always behaves rather oddly in home stories doesn't it doesn't it it's amazing that's why i love Holmes in the pertwee era he just doesn't care he doesn't care what everyone else is doing he gets his four mm. episodes each year and does something completely mental does what he wants to do i was going to say but of course this may be an exception because he was mm. unless it's another fan myth he was forced to write a historical by terence dix mm. when he could not have cared less. You know how people, like things like Moffat and Russell, say the same sort of thing, don't they? With the same self-deprecating sort of thing, like Moffat being asked to write Madame de Pompadour and not even being sure if she was a real or fictional character. Mm-hmm. But um, you get the impression then they do actually check before <laughs> before they put pen to paper. Whereas I just, <laughs> sorry, I've got I've got to stop <laughs> moaning about this. Mm-hmm. But it just seems to me to permeate. The heart of this story is nebulousness. You take that out. I like everything else about it. So I don't mm. know why it, I don't know why it annoys me so much. I think it's because I don't enjoy the characters of the Danish stroke Anglo-Saxon stroke Anglo-Norman yeah. Monty Python ripoffs <laughs> rejects. <laughs> so go on then. So 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 how about Sarah then? What 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 do, you, what do you make of her in this first story? I mean, I guess devised. Legendarily by Terence Dix and Barry Letts, but given to Robert Holmes to make something of. Hmm. Um. 
<laughs> she she well, perhaps she... strikes me as as being, you know, a man's idea of what what someone who is a feminist might say in some circumstances. I'm trying to be more diplomatic than that because obviously <laughs> it is a bit clunky at times. But it, I feel mm. like it could have been a lot worse under any other writer. Yeah, yeah. Assuming, of course, mm. that Dix didn't come in and add those bits. I don't know. Yes. If Bob and David had it, you slightly oh, he, to think. <laughs> or Robert Slo- no, Robert Slo- Sloman yeah. would have had something like mm. the amazing um, feminist debates from the Time Monster. Wouldn't they? <laughs> it, it's also tempting to say that Sarah Jane Smith arrives fully formed. But again, I think she is mostly written true to character, but I feel a, a hell of a lot of that is down to Elizabeth Sladen. So mm-hmm. even if, if you inspect the script more closely, I'm sure there are moments when she's not quite the Sarah that we know and love, but she gets the character right from the off and mm. sells it. Mm. I don't feel that you'd know, yeah, I don't think you'd watch this and know that, know instantly that this is going to become the best-loved, <laughs> no. best-loved and most fully-rounded companion of all time, though. And of course, yeah. even if there was nothing wrong with her, I'm sure people at the time wouldn't have thought that because she is so different from Joe Grant, who was so beloved by mm. the viewers and by the Doctor. Such mm. a reaction against her that I'm sure there must have been quite a few people sort of recoiling in horror almost mm. that she's a bit sharp and spiky and uh, know-it-all and yes, the thing yeah. is lovely, cuddly, fluffy mm. Joe wasn't. Mm. But of course she's in mm. contexts here that she never will be again, so how can we say yeah. if she's in or out of character? Because mm. never... Again, will she be required to th- to <laughs> arrive in medieval England and think that she's in a theme park or whatever? You know. Mm. So we only get that we only get those reactions once. Mm. It's a good set. It's a good setup to have her thinking that the Doctor's the villain. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's another thing you can you only get to do better. once. That's a lot more mm. promising than not mm. not believing that you travelled in time because. Mm. That's and that's uh, probably what makes her unique. She that spins out of her investigative journalism side, yeah. doesn't it? Hmm. Looking for the story, looking for the yeah hmm. truth of the situation. Yeah, and hmm. obviously catapulting her into medieval times also actually does does work quite well from the angle of okay, we're going to have a feminist air quotes companion. I guess it gives her something to immediately gives us something to veil against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Pertwee's sort of shouting at, you know, lovely Joe Grant in the first fine time he sees her, and yet with um, with Sarah, even though she gives him good reason <laughs> to get angry, he always seems to be surprisingly genial the, all the way through the story. Interesting, isn't that? I think mm. that's more, off the top of my head, I think that's more because the third Doctor's mellowed so much, because he is so <laughs> spiky early on, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. Even in differently with different writers, but um, he tends to have more of that verbose, acerbic wit in the mm. home stories. But it's but across the board, his character's mellowed and become as his hair's got bigger, his personality <laughs> has softened. <laughs> until yeah. here, we reach very like a Paldi in that sense. Peak fluffiness <laughs> across the board here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you like seeing uh, Dot Cotton, although, although rather rattled up on this occasion? Always a treat. Mm. Yes. 
<laughs> I haven't got anything else to say about that. I mean, she really only has about oh, two, 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 two decent sections in it, um, but uh, yeah, but, yeah, I thought I thought there was more of her than that than uh, the memory cheats. Mm. There, I think there could have been more fun. The relationship between her and her dithering, ineffectual husband could have mm. produced more fun. I think I'd have rather seen more of that than more, yeah. than, you know, shouting dames. Mm. But um, there you go. Rubish is great film, though, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. He gets all the best lines, doesn't he? I've forgotten how funny, yes. I've forgotten how good he is. When he gets, yes, yeah, he's, he's used sparingly, thank goodness. So when he pops mm. up, he, he comes out with zinger after zinger. Mm. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's just the way he's, at, he's, he's acting like a little bit of a Greek chorus and the whole thing. Like, oh, yes, oh, well, the Doctor was here. I suppose he'll pop up again. <laughs> he, seems to, he seems to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For someone whose whole shtick is to be apparently permanently bewildered, yeah. he's a uh, remarkably. <laughs> yeah, I mean the doctor does keep popping up, you know, remarkably. He sort of keep, he keeps visiting the same places, mm. he, and he seems to be strangely guileless as well. I mean, he keeps falling into pretty obvious traps. I mean, mm. he, they they even come back. I mean, I'm skipping forward a bit now, but they even come back to the castle in in episode four. With a plan to to um, send everyone to sleep, and then he sort of forgets about that plan for a bit and has a a go at links with his pathetic little sort of circular shield thing, which lasts about five seconds before Link yes. just <laughs> knocks it out of his hand. And, and you think, yeah, um, was your plan to get captured almost immediately again? I don't know. It it, it seems mm. bizarrely ineffectual. And in fact, it is Hal who saves the day in the end, isn't it? Rather than the Third Doctor. Mm. Really, and Rubish, and Rubesh, of course, and frankly, Rubish for yes. over the back of the Indeed. back of the vent. Yeah. Yes, I, I suppose he's you know he's given a clue to do that. But yes, mm. uh, he t- seems to need an awful lot of rescuing in this story. Mm. Strangely, one touch that is sorry, slightly random observations here. We seem to be jumping back and forth. But one thing I yeah. did notice that I thought was quite fun is is in um, is it episode one where Hal is about to get executed and the Doctor. Or is it episode two? Has the the, yeah. the robot knight, and the doctor shoots the control from Iron God's yes. hand, and basically the same shot repeats in episode three. Only it's only it's the doctor. Oh, yes. uh, it's sorry, and the doctor rescues Hal, and then Hal hits Iron God's axe in exactly the same way and rescues the doctor from that from that um situation. Yeah. This is clever circular writing, or just a sign that. Mm. He didn't even have enough ideas to fill four episodes. I, I can't quite decide whether that robot is a brilliant weapon or utterly hopeless. In that, you know, I mean, it's very good at attacking stuff, but do you want something that indiscriminately whacks you with an axe, or do you actually want to be able to point it at something? And uh, I don't know. It, it feels gone. Do you think it's described as script that way, as as being a bit of a mess and and reacting rather? spasmodically and randomly or is that just mm. a bad design because the design because it looks so cheap and appalling mm. in the wrong ways it if that is a, the joke then it kind of undercuts it for me yeah well, sometimes I have a bit of a rec- record for rubbish robots and things though, don't <laughs> um. yeah <laughs> uh, maybe it's a um, yeah so Santarans. Yeah. 
Now that's a, that's a triumph, isn't it? We I mm. stop being yes. grumpy about it. Hmm. I don't think they're ever bettered. I think I think I think Lynx is for me is the prime Sontaran, and I think everything mm. there's there's a, there's a lot that happens in this story that they pick up again and again and again whenever the mm. Sontarans come back. Kevin Lindsay, I think his performance is certainly part of that. But yeah, no, I, I, I I'm very impressed with that aspect of it. He's like all the best villains. He's a proper character in his in himself, yes. isn't he? He's not just mm. ranting and raving. Well, we've got somebody else to do that. <laughs> but he's he's one of the rare breed of Doctor Who villains. Is, oh, I was almost tempted to call him amoral rather than evil, but it's mm. a borderline. But he's he's also one of the only rational characters in this setup, and he just mm. yeah he's almost uh, I don't know. It reminds me of the does it remind me of the Rani, but he sort of wants to get on with his own. He's mostly interested in just getting on with his work and not being yes. bothered. So mm. Holmes does something very clever because he's invented this species who are presented as the embodiment of. A militaristic warlike mentality mm. un- gone unfettered yeah and yet he's not written that way all the way through because that would be that could no. be very funny but uh, and if, he, if that was his main point making that these satirical points across then he could have written that a m- lot more strongly and then it might have you know, a comedy genius or it might have got rather old rather quickly I don't know but here we get the best of both worlds I think the satirical points of the Santarans comes come across right from the mm. beginning with this with this silly little flag. Oh, the, the little yeah, Sontaran anthem bit and the, yes. And yet, in himself, he's rational. He he has clear motivation. He is seen with the Doctor. Mm. The, their first discussion is very well written. The Doctor takes him seriously. Reminds me of um, those early Star Trek episodes where Kirk would come across up against his intellectual equal in. A Romulan, you know, Romulan or Klingon. Commander. Someone with a yes, someone with a point of view. Yeah, looking back on it, knowing what we know about the Sontarans, where they are mostly used for comedy nowadays, hmm. it is interesting that he does both things hmm. in one character. But most writers, and even even Holmes himself at other times, would have only done gone for one of those aims. Hmm. But there you go. But on the yeah, but on the other hand, yeah. The comedy is very, very definitely is there, and the and the people who, the people who slag off the new series used as the Santarans. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, they've reduced them to a joke. No, they were always a joke, mm-hmm. and that was you know, yeah, quite deliberate. I wonder, um, you saying about that and uh, sort of having a villain with a point of view. I was, I was actually thinking about um, and what you were thinking. Uh, I was thinking a bit real like. Almost, although yeah, to be I don't know because Greel is Greel is perhaps more scenery chewing its Chang that's the the mm. the one with the point of view in in talents, but I was just wondering whether because the the genesis of this story it went through I think it was it was originally called the Time Fugitive, right? In in early drafts I think it was the Time Fugitive. It was the Time something else as well before it became the Time Warrior. I'm just trying to remember what's. Um... Is there any evidence that that suggests a different spin on well, the story do, itself? Well, you do. You do wonder. Yeah, it was. It was going to be called the Time, the time Survivor at some later point. Although, of course, he did. Yeah, I mean, the, but the Time Fugitive is, I think, the one that has the the infamous the storyline where he wrote the whole thing as a as a field field action report <laughs> from Holmes to Tevin Sedix. 
which is obviously the genesis of the the bit of the novelisation that he did write. Hmm. Apparently he was commissioned to write the whole novelisation and then either got bored or got stuck and handed it over to Terence and said, here, you do it, after he'd done the prologue. We may be too far away now from what the point you mentioned. You were listing other characters that reminded you of um, Link. Oh, sorry, no. It, 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 seems just, like, it, was... it seems like another Link, obviously Link back to the visitation, by the way, because um, what's his... What's his face? The mm. lead Terrell and that is famously one of those, by that era, one of the few monstrous villains we yeah. get who actually has a, character, a personality and uh, any kind of intellectual integrity. Yes, yeah. But um, Thanks for putting me back off, onto that point. No, 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 off, off topic. Mm. This is not the Visitation podcast. Yeah. I guess picking up your your point also about the new series treatment of Suntarans, it's in, it was interesting. You know, we, we've recently had, well, recently, relatively recently for Doctor Who, we had a Suntaran on a horse in the Flux series, mm. and oh my um, God. but but it actually says uh, <laughs> at some point, uh, Iron says, uh, get the get the get links, get a horse for links. I think he says, mm. I mean, we don't see it sadly because yeah, that, would be, that, that would be they fun. But mm. uh, but yeah, so it, even even in the original um, outing, that was uh, uh, that was set up. I was actually impressed that in in episode one we we do get actual actors on actual horses. Yeah, and especially considering that David Dacre's horse is um is uh, clearly not <laughs> clearly a bit of a handful mm. in that scene. It's, you think, yeah, okay, it's not Terry Walsh and a wig here. It's them mm. having to. Um, Wrangler, and that horse was uh, kicking off. So, yeah, yeah, we do get Terry Walsh in a wig. Sadly, I think is it episode two cliffhanger. There's there's a lot of sort of running around in long shot in mm. the uh, grounds of the castle that is just a little, little bit too athletic for probably Pertwee at this point. Mm. But <laughs> yes. I mean, it, 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 it's not that big a deal. But but it's, it's you just sort of think, yeah, you, you you're you're kind of. Making us think about that because you, because there are no close ups at any point. Okay, conspiracy theory time. Is this the reason for Pertwee's ever enlarging hair? Because it's easier to um, <laughs> it becomes easier to <laughs> easier to disguise the fact that it's Terry Walsh well, wearing a wig. It's got yeah, I mean the wig has been throughout the years, but it, it starts to look more and more. He starts to grow into his own wig, doesn't he? Basically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the, the theory is that um, Katie Manning was telling him that he got a bald spot and he was trying to get it longer and longer to to hide that. Yeah. But I mean, but whether that, yeah, I mean that that that's that's a sort of convention story. Where, how how true that is, I don't know. <laughs> there's there's a lovely bit later on where the Doctor and Sarah are, are sort of really enjoying themselves on the ramparts, and he's I mean he it's a little bit tongue in too tongue in cheek perhaps that he's sort of. You know, lighting something and slinging it over his shoulder, mm. and, and with, with his insouciance. But you know, mm. Elizabeth Sladen's jumping up and down to see over the edge of the rampart. That's rather, that's quite enthusiastic. Mm. I, I, I do think actually that that at that point when Iron Grond's men arrive at the castle, and there's about fifteen of them, and they make a sort of half decent attempt to scale the walls. It actually feels like they've got a decent force. You know, it's everywhere else in the story it feels like there's about three extras skulking in the corner but at that point mm. you think yeah you know Iron Gron actually genuinely has a band and you know for for this era of Doctor Who it's not a bad not a bad showing in terms of action hmm. is it Havoc? I guess it's probably the usual boys but um well I mean the, the um, um, I was just watching just with a bit more hair and I was just watching the um, thing about Havoc the documentary and, and they I think by this stage, they they've already gone. They, they I, th- yeah. I think I think they okay. they're really sort of season 
seven and eight mainly, possibly mm. a, a smidge of nine. But but by this end, apparently Terry Walsh was getting all the work, and have Havoc was kind of okay. At least this is this is what um, what what it says in Toby Haydock's and, and uh, Chris Chapman's documentary. Mm. There's quite a few parallels I got also with Day of the Daleks. In that again, you've got I guess you know unit in the present day era, and you've again mm. you've got the, the the Doctor and and the companion time traveling to a different era. Uh, the Doctor's also tucking uh, fairly heavily into cheese and wine at one point in uh, <laughs> Sir Edward's era. I mean, it, unfortunately, I think unlike Day, you don't get the return to to unit at the end, which would have you know perhaps rounded the episode out a bit. I mean, it's perhaps perhaps in this case it would have been unnecessary, but uh, but yeah. Well, it's funny. It was only when I went to get get the DVD out to watch it for this that I suddenly spotted the invasion of the dinosaurs is right next to it, of course, which I've always yeah. known, but. But it only suddenly occurred to me, hang on, they both involve sort of time scoops. And um, yeah. and it's obviously it's more a feature of Invasion of the Dinosaurs than it is really here. They don't make all that much of it. Hmm. Yeah, it's careless, isn't it? I wonder how yeah. that happened. Well, you know, and then, uh, yeah, Carnival of Monsters as well. Hmm. So uh, there's a theme here. Bob likes a time scoop. Hmm. And when was this? Because I mean, Carnival of Monsters... Plays briefly with the idea of being historical, I guess, with the ship stuff. But we yeah. know we we already know. I think we 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 are pretty clued in pretty early that there's other stuff going on as well. I'm just trying to think how long it actually had been since we'd had a had a historical setting in Doctor Who before this. Uh, evil of the Daleks. I'm... Evil. Yeah, could be. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Does Zoe get anything? I mean, aside from a few historical characters in the Mind Robber, but it's not a historical setting. Mm. I suppose Abominable Snowmen. Well, yes. Counts. It it feels like it should do, but it also it feels like it isn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's sort of written present day, isn't it? Even though it's supposed to be whatever the hell yes, it is, yeah, 14 know, years I mean, ago. Yes, yeah. Yes, it's been a long time. Are they Have they forgotten how to do it? War games again. Uh, it sort of has historical elements in it, doesn't it? Hmm. But not really. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, we're, we're in pseudo, yeah, you know, pseudo historical yes. territory, and it comes back, and then we're. Hmm. But yes, it has been a long time. Hmm. And then they don't do it again until. Ask Mandragora. Yeah, Mandragora. Yeah. Mandragora. Do we know what Bob's brief was for this? Has anyone checked to see? Was he told? Was it just we'd like this in the twelfth century, please, Bob? Or was he, was he told we'd like a science fiction story set in the twelfth century? I'm just trying to work out how much he tried to fight the brief, how much he added to try and <laughs> secure it away from it. Well, they he was doing something called the automata that was rejected, of which we know little. Yeah, and um, Terence suggested doing. Historical because they hadn't really done anything much. Yeah, oh, the time monster being another being another sort of pseudo historical, I guess. And Atlantis, if that counts vaguely. Mm. And Terence suggested doing a medieval adventure. Yeah, I can't find out anything further than Terence suggested that, and Holmes agreed, provided it wouldn't have any actual historical people, <laughs> any any known characters, and right. could have a Strong sci-fi element. Yeah. 
So it sounds, it sounds like he wanted to do as little research as possible and just set it in a theme park, oh, which comes back to what you were saying, Paul. I, which is yeah. odd because then he relishes he relishes it later, doesn't he? I mean, with yeah, with um, with Wing Shang, obviously. But he doesn't. I don't think he really likes anything pre-Victorian. I don't know. I don't know mm. Wonder where he would cut draw the divine yeah. line. Maybe, maybe Enlightenment. Once people start talking about modern, mm. modern humans. Mm. So did it live up to your? You, you mentioned earlier that um, you is one you're keen to see. Mm. as a nascent fan so when you finally saw it and indeed today did it live up to your hopes because it sounds like it's going to be a well we all know it's an important one with so many firsts in it Mm. we haven't even mentioned the first mention of Gallifrey Mm -hmm. but um, Mm. yeah in terms of quality did you what what do you think of it because I think I've already hinted Mm. I've always found it a little bit disappointing and I don't know quite why it's Maybe doesn't yeah, it's it's not all that it could be, knowing knowing the concept and and yeah, it's obviously so long since I've read the novelization I can't think of what what expectations I would have bought bought from that sort of foreknowledge. And it's I still find it quite an enjoyable romp, personally. I don't have you know, it's Yeah it's maybe it's it's not yeah, it's there's there's pleasure to be had from you know, from David Dacre and I know that I suspect is the is the dividing line between us here, Paul? That I think, I think you get less out of Iron Gron and stuff than mm. than I do. I know, admittedly, anything anything like that where there's lots of ah. Acting. I think I'd have. I, sub- some... I feel like I'd have enjoyed all that more if it had been played even bigger, fully for laughs. Because mm. at least then I would have had the laughs. Yeah. But it just annoys me. It just looks like a, it you know, it just starts to look like a children's program mm. with people. It, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think really. I think. I think David Dacre pictures it right. Oh, well, he's, I'm trying to work he, out what the. Of course he does. They, they all, they, both of them, do a great job with those characters. But I just think they're on a hiding to nothing from my point of view. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. Is it Bloodaxe being a bit, you know, wimpy by comparison? Or I, it just it feels like it's it's. It, I think I think that you know what Paul is suggesting. I, I guess it is that it, you know, it's it, it doesn't feel genuinely historical. It doesn't feel like there's there's much. There's, there's a lot of peril that's talked about, but there's very little that you actually see, mm. and uh, so so I would agree that it doesn't really do that. I mean, I my opinion of it generally has been quite low, but on watching it this time, I, I quite enjoyed it as as you're suggesting, Giles. It kind of was was a, a sort of harmless historical romp. Everyone seems to be having great fun making it. it you know, it's hard. It, it's mm. quite good humoured. It's hard to get upset about it but it it doesn't feel <laughs> you know like it's got real you know it's not like pyramids of mars where you f- you feel like there's you know, a real sense of suspense and terror and mm. something kind of really dangerous might happen it's it, it's mm. it, it's kind of a bit insipid that, yeah yeah yes it, it falls between the stools of the things that holmes normally is really good at mm. but and then even visually i just don't really like i don't know the direction at all it just seems very flat the sets annoy me. I mean, the thing is, I don't want to go on a rant, but it's just like it just annoy- within the first few minutes, I was thinking, yeah, this is why I don't like this. I remember, and the BBC mm. normally so good at this sort of thing, like, and yet the castle wall just looked like painted backdrops, like a from a, re- from a cheap Amdram theatrical mm. production, and I would know. And, and <laughs> weird, uh, painted flats, a weird plastic, shiny plastic wooden doors. It's just it looks so 
and the robot knight. And yet, at, at the same time, you've got the Santaran design of the yeah, costume, mm. the mask, the spaceship, which is brilliant. So uh, I guess some of the departments were firing on all cylinders and not others. Mm. But I don't know. I think the whole thing, I just felt within about five minutes, it, some, something happened that summed the whole thing up to me. I, I, a scene is supposed to end really dramatically when Iron is raised to a fervour and mm. vowing what he's going to do next. And he, he raises his axe high and slams it down on the table. And presumably it's supposed to thunk into the wood yeah, of the tabletop. And all it does is just it. smash a few things, you know, a few cups <laughs> jiggle about. And you get a close-up <laughs> of nothing in particular. Bits of, random bits of wood on the table with his axe light. And it's just... <laughs> It yeah. seems like an odd thing to get really exercised about, but I'm an odd yeah. man, and I'm going to. I'm going to say that that scene just summed the whole thing up to me. It's just half, <laughs> half-hearted and imprecise. For for me, where it, where it jumps the shark for me is that is the gunfight um, in episode four, where Pertwee somehow manages to dodge, you know, f- five bullets <laughs> with guns. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad they are at aiming. I mean, how could they possibly keep missing him so? Uh, terribly i don't know it's odd isn't it because he never writes stuff like that once he's script editor i guess he um had less self-control he would just write expect dicks to tell him this this is a bad idea we can't do this or we li- <laughs> whether it's we physically can't do this or we we can't make this look conv- nobody could make this look convincing bob you can type this stuff bob but you can't film yeah. it to paraphrase <laughs> I mean, george lucas it's, it's also when you know the the, the the thing with the candelabra and Pertwee swings out and they mm. start running away and then they stop for a second so he can say to Sarah it's just like that dashing a man from the flying trapeze and then they run up, run off again and it, it, again mm. it's another one of those things of well you know it's it's a nice line but but really would anyone stop to to mm. deliver it to then run off it, you know it, it feels a bit too much like a play and a bit not like a, a genuine not if the, yeah not in that actual. Given the set construction and, and the yeah the mechanics of what you've actually had done, and the fact it's a fairly low low vent chandelier swing, really, yes. yeah, and <laughs> less than bees literally swung from one side of a room to another at ground level, yes, and um, and luckily no no luckily no no one was standing in the way, so then disappearing <laughs> out the door, disappearing out the door, and then stopping on the other side of it. I mean, if it had been. If it had been proper swashbuckling Robin Hood and he'd done it at, at height and had a, yeah, you know, had some gallery he was going to be on, and so you could realistically assume that the villains were going to be you know, a few minutes behind him, then yes, you got time to um, you got time to stop and and uh, have your witticisms. But yeah. um, hmm, going back to Sarah, yeah. Sarah Jane and and the debuting again. This is sorry, this is jumping around a bit, but no, no, go. given the sort of somewhat somewhat boilerplate feminism and so on, you you do rather wonder what would have happened if April Walker had been cast. Yeah, in yeah, you know, had actually well, well, she was cast, but if she'd made it onto onto screen, being a rather more Amazonian type, as I as I understand it, compared to the petite Miss Sladen. Hmm. Well, it's a good point because, I mean, certainly Liz Sladen is able to carry off the kind of large number of different costumes, most of which are a bit pastiche but reasonably well, mm-hmm. and and to blend in the background and hide behind things, you know, rather better than a, than a taller person might be able to. Mm-hmm. So there is that. It's it's interesting. I mean, you just said 
Sarah, then you said Sarah Jane. Mm. It's an it's an interesting question. That uh, I mean, yes, yes. I mean, you look, if you look at the script, she introduces mm. herself twice as Sarah Jane Smith, mm. but the Doctor only ever calls her Sarah, mm. and she's only ever referred to one other time, and that's by Sir Edward, and he also calls her Sarah. Mm. So. Yeah, it's it's a bit bizarre. She seems to be convinced she's called Sarah Jane, and everyone else seems to be convinced she's called Sarah. <laughs> well, if she only ever says Sarah Jane Smith, then perhaps she's just a, an obsession with middle names for some reason. Yeah, mm. yeah. Clearly, by the by the second story we're going to talk about, everyone seems to think that she's called Sarah Jane. Mm. She's acquired a hyphen. Yeah, mm. and I mean it's not unknown in this time, you know, like a tear Sarah Jane at the mm. end of. Um, like the spiders, but it, but she, she's much more often referred to as Sarah. Hmm. What about Sarah? And Sarah. <laughs> I'm being a terrible host tonight. I keep butting in, and and um, everyone's forgotten what they're going to say by the time I finished ranting on. You way-faced ninny. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've written down long a few. Uh... Long with a mighty nose. <laughs> I would I wouldn't have gone with that one. That's a bit too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good. Uh, oh, that was it. Given the setting, and given that um, given that she's got quite a quite a um short haircut and everything, it's it's almost a wasted opportunity that they don't have her um, being ah, you know being mistaken for a boy or disguising herself as a boy in um yeah in the traditional um traditional setup of um, superb, and that would have fitted with the whole gender debate yes, yeah. that it had been tasked mm. with introducing. Or would it? Yeah. Would it have appeared to be undermining it and making a mockery? Mm. Well, you can do both. Yeah. I, I guess Liz Slayton, what you'd have to say about her performances is that she believes in the character and uh, so whatever else you're getting, it seems to be a very consistent and, and kind of thought-out performance. Mm. Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's the thing. You see the experience and the the reality that she will, you know, continuously bring to bring yeah. to the role. I mean, the only difference here is that that the the incredible chemistry that she has with Tom Baker. I mean, you know, there, mm. there's definitely chemistry with with John Pertwee here, but it's n- not at mm. the same level. And I don't think it's you know I don't think it's ever going to get there during the course of this um, season. Mm. Super. Have, have we got anything else to say about the time uh, warrior? I haven't. The only other note that I have is that um, Alan Bromley apparently the first time Kevin Lindsay had to say Santaran, Alan Bromley apparently stopped and had a debate with him about how Santaran should be pronounced. <laughs> right. And and Kevin Lindsay won out, which which mm. begs the question of what um <laughs> what other pronunci- pronunciation. Didn't Catherine Tate have trouble with it? Did she think they were Sonterans or something? Or was that maybe actually on screen? It. I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> I'm getting confused in maybe. reality and fiction. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's what Alan Pulney would have inflicted on us. But it was definitely Gallifrey right from the beginning. Mm. Just Tom Baker didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> that's very Bob Holmes, of course, the fact that the Sonterans know of Gallifrey yes. and the Time Lords and have opinions mm. on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and then Pertwee comes up with that galactic ticket inspector line as well. I mean, well, yeah, obviously Robert, Robert Holmes comes up with a line, but it's delivered by <laughs> Pertwee, which is... I mean, we're still in 
living memory of the of the audience of um, the godlike yes uh, time yes. lords of the war yeah. games. But so, yeah. but you know, we, mm. yeah, I suppose it was even closer to that that we had that idiot in the bowler hat fly an umbrella mm. umbrella flying around. So mm. yeah, I suppose that's the thin end of the wedge, isn't it? Do you think when um, when Pertwee and Sladen dress up as monks to go through the gate and they're completely cowled over and Pertwee does his instantly recognisable Devonian accent to try mm. to get through. Are we supposed to to recognise that it's Pertwee uh, and so on or, or are we supposed to be completely surprised when they sort of come the other side and he takes his hood off? I, I, I couldn't quite tell whether it was supposed to be a sort of knowing thing or whether... whether it, uh, he thought he was his, his accent was better than it really was. Pass. Ooh, I think I think it's knowing. I mean, you know, I mean, Pertwee was. I mean, you know, this is still Pertwee was doing the doing the navy lark on his off days, wasn't he? And um, I think he was he was still well enough known as the city voice man. We don't really get any. Do we get many city voices in between? He does one in. Is it Spearhead? He, he does. He does one fairly early on. Or some somewhere, and then there's the one that doesn't make it on screen in Inferno as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I know, I know, he, I know he does one somewhere in season seven, and I was very surprised. I was thinking his infamous, you know, gritty end of Pertwee, and, and he's <laughs> he's doing the silly voices, and then yeah. then it does, I think, go away until yeah. Although we still get the milkman and the washerwoman yeah. and things like that. So he's uh, hmm. But yeah, no, I think that's knowing. I don't think they were yeah. trying to fool any. I don't think they were trying to fool anyone other than the, yeah. other than the other than the comedy guards who then get then get an equally daft mm. comeuppance at the end with the old hi. Yeah. Which apparently there was a whole apparently there was a whole lot of business scripted a combat a combat sequence. Right. Was script scripted for that with them having to make a daring escape and uh, someone I'm not sure who rewrote it with. Um, thought let's just do a co- let's just do a comedy gag and get out, mm. get out promptly. We've had enough running around and sword and sword fights and stuff. It's it's weird in watching this now. I still can't see Pertwee as anything other than old man, even though he's mm. you know a good couple of years younger than I am right now when he was making it. Mm. So yeah, I I I don't know. It's it, it, it's uh, I I I guess I have some appreciation for how he might have felt a bit stiff having to do all of the um physical business and and maybe that that, that um you know that that's what sort of forced him to think about leaving at the end of the this mm. season is this your way of suggesting that we get Terry Washington as a stand-in for you for the second half of this podcast <laughs> yeah I, I think I think I think Terry may be uh, past his best too but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah maybe stunt double Okay, do you want to do you want to do to have a quick break? Then perhaps we should relieve them of some of their abundance, eh, my friends? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was the end of the line. <laughs> they're good neighbours. They'll not miss a little of their plenty. It landed close by, I hear you. I tell you. What? It landed close by. 
<laughs> Sorry I couldn't get anywhere near David Dacre. But, oh, uh, it's splendid. It's, don't worry. You know, it, it had a consistency inside the character, whatever that character was. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 